The church is entering the holiest time of the year, starting Palm Sunday. So what does that mean for you and me? Two of our local men became deacons, and Pope Francis delivers an apostolic exhortation to the young people of the world. These topics and more coming up next. Welcome to A View from the Top with Bishop Gregory Parks, Bishop of the Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is a candid and hopeful conversation on current events that affect our church, our community, and our country. Now, here's Bishop Parks and the General Manager of Spirit FM, John Morris. Good to see you, Bishop. Nice to be with you again, John. You've been busy. <laughs> it's been a, been a busy time for all of our priests and at our parishes as we continue to, to draw ever closer uh, to Holy Week. So as this program approaches Holy Week, we are entering Palm Sunday. A lot of people come to Palm Sunday. It's like the return of the visitors before the big influx next Sunday. And, and the service often starts a little bit different than what we normally would see on a, on a normal Sunday. It sure does. Uh, the liturgy is a bit different, and particularly at the beginning, a lot of times well, there's several different ways that it can be done, but many times the liturgy will begin outside of the church, and all of the faithful, the congregation, will be invited to, to gather outside for gospel reading as well as for the blessing of the palms. Of course, the significance of Palm Sunday is that it marks the beginning of Holy Week, but specifically we recall Jesus' entry, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Of course, he entered that way, but that's not how things ended, of course, with his crucifixion and with his death. But we begin Holy Week by, by marking and remembering that his entry into the holy city of Jerusalem, in which people held palms and laid them at his feet. And those would be equivalent to, like, flowers? Yeah, it, it would be. It was a very kind of common thing that they would have had available, and it would be a sign of respect for him as he entered, to greet him with that and, and again, to lay them at his feet as he entered into the city. Now, a practical take. Uh, oftentimes, we, we grab a palm or a frond as we go into the church. Some are made up as weaved into crosses. Is that appropriate? And what do we do with them once Mass is over? <laughs> All very good questions. And uh, the thing we should remember about the palms is that they are blessed. So they're considered to be holy and they have a specific purpose. Like you, I, I see some uh, children at times or even adults are very artistic, John. Right. I, I, don't, I don't have that gift. I've never had that <laughs> gift of being able to, to shape the palms or to turn them into something beautiful right, right. other than what they are. But some really do. And, and that's quite extraordinary. There's nothing wrong with doing that. And uh, as we leave church on that day, we should take the palms, the blessed palms with us home and, and place them somewhere in our homes in a place of, of respect, uh, in a, not to say, say a sacred space, but a lot of folks will put them by a crucifix or behind a crucifix that hangs on the wall or close to some other religious image of some type. Now, People will often say, well, what do I do with it after a year? And I go back for Palm Sunday Mass the next year. Well, it's time to, to receive new palms. And the appropriate way to dispose of the older palms would either be to burn them, if you have a, a like a barbecue grill, okay, okay. or to bury them, or to simply place them out in uh, your yard where they would decompose in a very natural way. But not throw them away. Don't want to, again, since they're holy right. and they've been blessed, uh, that would not be a desirable way to, to get rid of them would be to, to place them in the trash. One of the, the unique things also about the Palm Sunday service is the, uh, the reading of the gospel. And actually, the congregation, not only on that day, but I believe it's on Good Friday, also participates verbally. 
That's correct. It's the two times during our liturgical year when actually the congregation participates in the reading, the proclamation of the gospel at Mass. Palm Sunday, and then again, as you mentioned, on Good Friday. I've, I've heard the expression, you and I crucified Jesus. Now, when I read the, the gospel reflections and, and the gospel itself, I see, well, it was Pontius Pilate and the Romans, it was the Jews— so how, how are you and I involved in that? <laughs> that's, a, that's another great question. Well, you have to kind of separate the historical events that led up to his death, so his actual persecution and passion and then ultimately his crucifixion and death, uh, the events that led up to that and the different individuals who were responsible for getting to that point. In a theological sense, so kind of looking more in a spiritual or theological way as opposed to historical, we would say that our common sin really is what caused or brought about our Lord's suffering and ultimately his death because he died for the forgiveness of our sins, not just for the sins of those at that time that he lived, but for the sins of all humanity. And so in a certain sense, the only reason he had to do that is because of our common sin and the fact that we still sin today. But because he was willing to make that sacrifice for us, we can have forgiveness of our sins even today. Tuesday is the Chrism Mass. What is the Chrism and what are the oils associated with that? So here in the Diocese of St. Petersburg, we celebrate what's called the Chrism Mass on Tuesday, the traditional day to celebrate it and in some dioceses, not many, but even in the Diocese of Rome uh, with the Holy Father, it's still celebrated on Holy Thursday morning. Okay. So you would have the Chrism Mass in the morning and then the Mass of the Lord's Supper with the washing of the feet in the evening. But here we do it on Tuesday, and it's a Mass where we do two primary things. First of all, we bless the holy oils, the oils that shall be used in our parishes for the celebration celebration of the sacraments. So you have the oil of the sick, the oil of catechumens, and the sacred chrism. And each of those has their, their particular purpose or reason that they're used. And then the second thing is that on that day we recall the institution of the priesthood and all the priests who are gathered in the presence of their bishop renew their priestly commitment. So they renew the promises that they made at their ordination, and it's a very beautiful expression of their communion and unity with their bishop in the presence of the people gathered there. It's one of the few times in the liturgical year where we see the vast majority of all of the priests in the diocese come together under one roof to not only celebrate, but to fellowship, uh, because I know there's usually a lunch or something afterwards, and the, and the guys get to really uh, get to visit a little bit before uh, all the work comes at the end of the week. Yeah, we, we sure do. And that, one of the reasons uh, this year our Chrism Mass, and I think usually it is celebrated at 1130 in the morning, so that it gives the opportunity for our priests who are in our northern counties, even up to, to Citrus County, right. the chance to celebrate Mass in their parish that morning and then be able to drive here to our cathedral in St. Petersburg to join their brother their priests and their bishop and the faithful, again, to renew their promises and to celebrate that priestly fraternity that we share. And then we move on to the start of the Triduum. Why are the Thursday, Friday, and Saturday called the Triduum? So that word, it's a, it's a Latin word, which comes from triduum, or three days, is literally what it means. And it's in our liturgical calendar as, as Catholics, and it's uh, really the three holiest days uh, of the year for us. 
kind of our high holy days, uh, right. as we're as referred to in other faiths. So it marks those three days. So it begins Thursday evening with the Mass of the Lord's Supper, and then continues into Good Friday with the again the reading and the celebration of the Lord's Passion, the veneration of the cross, and then culminates with the celebration of the Easter Vigil, which uh, begins on Holy Saturday evening, uh, usually right around sunset. So is the Trudemum one long service? It is. It's actually uh, it's three different celebrations, but it's kind of one continuous celebration in a certain sense because we walk with our Lord. I mean, we kind of call to mind uh, him gathering for that Last Supper, that last Passover meal uh, with his disciples when he instituted the Eucharist and instituted the priesthood. And then, of course, after he left there, he goes out to the garden to pray before undergoing his passion. So Holy Thursday evening kind of leads into to Good Friday with his, his passion and suffering, ultimately with the crucifixion and the placing in the tomb, and then culminates again with, with really what is, is just a magnificent liturgy on Saturday evening called the Easter Vigil, where we celebrate the Lord's resurrection, but also celebrate the Easter sacraments uh, with those that are coming into the church right. who are being baptized. So the night of Holy Thursday, the, the service will start at 7 o'clock at the cathedral, and I know that Spirit of Him will be covering that live, and uh, it will be live-streamed uh, on the diocesan website. There's the washing of the feet. Some people feel a little funny about that. Some parishes, everybody gets their feet washed. Others, uh, not so much. But talk about the significance of that particular ceremony and, and the deep meaning that it has for people. Well, of course, it's it's based on the gospel, you know, where our Lord washed the feet of his disciples. Uh, of course, we know <laughs> some of them, I think specifically Peter, resisted, but ultimately submitted to, to the Lord's wishes. Um, but it was a sign of humility. It was a sign of love, a sign of charity. Uh, it was an example that Jesus gave to his followers and asked that as he's done for them, uh, that they have that same love, that same charity for each other. So it was a, a real but also symbolic action uh, reminding us that we're called to serve others and to love others, uh, even to wash their feet, something that would be considered kind of difficult for, for many of us, kind of base, uh, but yet that's what he calls it. It's a, it's a call to charity, a call to love others. If you go to church daily and you show up for Mass Friday morning, probably not going to be any Mass there. <laughs> because, as we said, uh, the the Mass for the Lord's Supper is the beginning of it, so there's there's no Mass on Friday. That's correct. No no Mass on Good Friday, but we don't leave you wanting, John. We will have the Eucharist. <laughs> okay. So if you come on Good Friday, uh, part of our liturgy that day is to receive communion, and it would be the Eucharist, which was consecrated the evening before. All right. So uh, Holy Thursday evening at the Mass of the Lord's Supper, we do consecrate enough hosts so that we'll have them available on Friday for those who come for those services as well as for the sick on those days also. Interesting service, too, on Good Friday because you don't have the traditional hymns that uh, you would process in. It's usually quiet, and there's something I, I know about called the Great Silence. It starts about noon. What's the historic significance there? So, yeah, first of all, you mentioned the music. It is a very kind of subdued, kind of a somber liturgy. There's really no instrumental music on that day, or typically there's not. 
Uh, if there's any music, it's usually some chanting, but really no, not, not the music that we would be used to on a Sunday right. uh, in our churches. Again, that, that time period from noon to 3 p.m. Uh, calls to mind what we believe to be the, the time of our Lord uh, on the cross, right? So he was nailed to the cross and was there for several hours, we believe, before he expired and ultimately gave his life up for us. So it is a very kind of quiet, reflective time for us and a time just to remember how deeply God loves us so much that he gave his son for our salvation. I know a lot of people still have to work on Friday, but even if you can find a quiet place in your office or just chill and kind of meditate as you do your work, do the best you can for that time. Yeah, and and also just a reminder that it's, again, one of the two days uh, during the season when we are called to not only abstain from meat, uh, but is a day of fast. That's right. So we can have one full meal and then two smaller snacks or two mm-hmm. smaller meals that would not equal a second meal on that day. So just a reminder to the to the faithful about that. Now, speaking of meals, I know that even though it's Good Friday, we're, we're supposed to abstain, mom, wives, they're planning the Sunday feast. <laughs> and I think at some churches, and I may be wrong, but some churches invite people to bring their food in uh, around noon, one o'clock on, on that Saturday to have it blessed. Yeah, they, they sure do. In fact, uh, at my last parish, when I was a pastor before I became bishop, this was when I was pastor in Orlando, we used to invite the faithful to bring by their Easter baskets or basket with the food for what we call the first meal of Easter okay. to the parish church on that Saturday morning, so Holy Saturday morning, where we would have a little prayer service and we would bless those Easter baskets, uh, that food that would be consumed for the celebration of Easter. John, I have to make a confession. Okay. Uh, boy, you know, you, you smell the food in those baskets, <laughs> and after you've been fasting, you know, it just it's almost irresistible. <laughs> you just want to take a little piece of that honey-baked ham. A little bit of ham or some of the bread or something, <laughs> right. you know. But but also, uh, you know, check with your local parish to see if they are doing that, if your church or your parish is doing it, because it is a nice tradition. I'd also mention to the faithful, it is kind of customary if you feel moved to do so, uh, to prepare a little plate for the priest or for the pastor. Nice. Okay, I did <laughs> so not know he, that. So that he can take it back to his home and enjoy the, some of that Easter food. Also keep in mind, too, our less fortunate who may not have an Easter meal. I know a lot of parishes uh, collect for St. Vincent de Paul Society, so it might be appropriate to bring something uh, for them, for those organizations as well. That night is the Easter vigil. It's supposed to start at dark, and most parishes do, and I say most, with a wink to the bishop. Because some, you know, they they try to get it in a little early, I guess for logistical purposes and so forth. But traditionally, why does it start at dark at night? Yeah, so again, uh, sunset would mark kind of the end in the Jewish tradition, the end of one day and the beginning of another. So entering into Saturday evening after sunset, we're already anticipating entering into Sunday, which is the day of the Lord's resurrection. Uh, But it's also symbolic. You know, the the Easter vigil is a, a celebration of our, really, of our salvation, but also of salvation history. And beginning in the darkness kind of calls to mind when God created the earth, and it was a wasteland, and there was nothing there. 
and then eventually he created the, the separated the light and the darkness, right, mm-hmm. and the waters and so forth. So it's kind of a progression as we go through salvation history, and it's celebrated in a very the symbols that we use during the Easter vigil, blessing the Easter fire outside, and then lighting the Easter candle, you know, the Paschal candle, and then processing into the church, which is dark. And the only light is that light of Christ, that Easter candle, piercing the darkness. Uh, Again, a symbol of God's presence in this dark world. And then eventually, as the liturgy continues and we read the readings, the lights come on and we sing the Gloria and then start, begin to celebrate the joy of Easter. It really, if you have never been to an Easter vigil, I know it's long. But it moves very quickly, and what a glorious celebration to see the people coming into the church, being baptized, receiving communion for the first time, seeing families together. It's a beautiful, moving ceremony, a liturgy with, as you say, full of symbols, smells, and bells. It's got everything there mm-hmm. that you want. Yeah, so, it, sure, it sure does. And like you said, if, if you've never experienced it, I would say, depending on how many are going to be baptized that evening and how many readings they do, uh, you're probably going to be there a good two, two and a half hours, I would just to, to let you know. But as you said, you're, you're just so engaged, so involved in the liturgy and what's happening uh, that you don't really pay attention to your watch. That's right. And uh, it's hard. at the end of it, it's difficult to believe that it's been that, that long of a time. But my experience is that, that those who attend the Easter Vigil leave uh, full of joy, yeah, you know, having yeah. experienced that. And uh, when my kids were younger, it was just hard to get them there for, for Easter night. But mm-hmm. as they got older into, into their high school and college years, we would take them to the vigil, and then we would celebrate right after the vigil by going out to, to dinner or an early breakfast, because Mass would end around 11 or so. Yeah, you know, and, and John, actually, we might say, you know, two hours, two or three hours for a Mass, that's a long. You know, in ancient times, the Easter vigil actually lasted all night and, and culminated in the morning with the celebration of the sacraments and then a reception or celebration sure. after that, but it actually went all night. So shifting gears now, last weekend, we had two of our local boys make good, as we say. Uh, They became deacons, transitional deacons, Connor Penn and Drew Woodkey. And uh, a long time in coming for them with their education, but it's going to be a great day when they become priests. Yeah, it sure will. And, you know, uh, it was a day of great joy. I wasn't able to be there myself, but I did watch uh, on the live stream. So <clears throat> so I was able to, to be present in that way and, of course, spiritually lifting them up in prayer. As you said, they're deacons. Now, uh, people will ask, well, you mentioned transitional deacon. What's the difference between a transitional deacon and a permanent deacon? Uh, Drew and Connor are transitional because they are deacons, but ultimately they'll be ordained priests. So they're kind of transitioning through holy orders, and uh, after about a year, so hopefully next May, uh, they'll of serving as deacons, they'll be ordained priests. The other order is the permanent diaconate, and it's permanent because it was established as a permanent order. So it's for men, uh, usually at least 35 years old, who are ordained deacons, so they have the same charism and the same responsibilities as our transitional deacons do, but they're in a permanent state of diaconate. Their intention is not to be ordained a priest, but to serve their life as a permanent deacon. Is that intention, as you say, intention because they are already married, or is there an instance where if the wife passes away, could they become a priest? Yeah, they certainly could. Again, that's not the intention that they would enter into the permanent diaconate or be ordained for. 
something our, our listeners may not know is that a permanent deacon, when he's ordained, though he's married, has the understanding that when his wife passes away, if she predeceases him, that he is not permitted to get married again. Oh, I didn't know that. So at that time, from the time of her death forward, he would remain in a celibate state, an unmarried state. It is possible that a, a man who was married and his wife passed away, a deacon, could be ordained a priest, but that would be a process of discernment that he would have to go through with the bishop, and uh, there might be some additional uh, education or training that he would have to go through before being able to be ordained a priest. Sure. Recently, the Pope came out with an apostolic exhortation on entitled Christ is Alive, the English translation, and it's uh, mostly uh, geared toward young people. This was done at the end of March, I believe. Have you had a chance to read it? I have quickly glanced over it. <laughs> Can I make a confession, John? Sure. I, I haven't been able to get through the whole thing. Okay. Well. Um, but you, as you mentioned, it is the, uh, this is kind of a long word, but post-synodal document that the Holy Father issued as a response to the synod, which was held on youth and young adults, on their vocation right. uh, in the church. And so it's his reflections and kind of the takeaways from that synod gathering, which had occurred in Rome. And if we remember that gathering, in that gathering, we did the, the bishops and the cardinals did a lot of listening. And the Holy Father, we listened to our young people. We talked to them. We asked them questions. And we engaged with them, spent time with them. And so this document, which is entitled Christus Vivit, meaning Christ lives or Christ is living, is a reflection on the takeaways from that encounter with our young people. It, what it talks about is a lot about our need as a church to engage our young people, to listen to, to continue to listen to them, and to recognize that they have gifts and talents today that they can put at the service of God and of his church. As the Holy Father has said, and I've, I've said for years, uh, people will say that our, our youth, our young adults, are the future of the church. Uh, we've all heard that. Right. But I say that they are the church. They're the church today, and, and the church needs them, and the church loves them. I think about my children and the new technologies, the new things that they're encountering that you and I didn't have when we were, were young people, and the different challenges. I mean, there's still peer pressure, and there's still bullying and that kind of thing that we experienced, but it comes in different forms these days. For some, it may be more difficult, but the thing that, that I saw at the end of this was that the Holy Father said, young people, and I'm paraphrasing here, keep running the race, pass us up, but then when you get to the finish line, wait for us. Yeah. And and as a, as a parent, you know, I want my kids to succeed, and sometimes as parents, we're stuck in our old-time ways, and we don't want to listen to our, our young people, and mm -hmm. maybe it's time, that's what the Holy Father's saying, maybe it is time that we listen to what they're saying. And also that, that our young people long for God's presence in their lives. They're not looking for a faith that's watered down or that's easy. They want to know the truth. As hard or as difficult as that might be, uh, they want to know what God has taught us and how he's calling us to live our lives. So they want us to be honest with them and to be truthful with them and to help them, to lead them to a closer relationship and encounter with God's love.
Before we close out, we've got a, a couple of questions from people in the pew, but is there anything on your mind, that on your heart that you want to talk about? No, uh, just um, I guess one thing that I would maybe invite our listeners to do is as we enter into Holy Week, and, and I always invite whenever I celebrate the Mass for Palm Sunday in my homily, which is usually very short right, after, day, right? after the lengthy <laughs> reading of the Passion, what I encourage people to do is to invite someone to come with them. Invite them to come to experience Holy Week or at least Easter Sunday. You know, maybe somebody who's away from the faith or is struggling a little bit, somebody who might need some hope or is discouraged. You know, invite them to come with you and your family to to Easter Sunday Mass. And uh, we just challenge us all to think if we if we know somebody that we can help lead them back to to God. Well, it's, it's part of our mission as Christians. It's part of our mission here in the diocese to proclaim, invite, and encounter. And that's a great way to do it on Easter. And you know, a lot of us either we have in laws that come visit. We invite friends that maybe aren't of the Catholic tradition to come uh, come to mass with us. Or we go to them, and that kind of leads me to a question that that we received. If I'm hosting someone, I bring them to Mass with me, they're not Catholic. They want to go up and receive communion. How can we be a welcoming church? I know there's some things that we do visually to do that. Yeah, so, of course, everyone is welcome to to come to our churches, to our parishes, and to, to worship and celebrate with us. But just as when we go to another religious denomination, we want to be respectful of their tradition and of their teachings, we hope and expect the same when when those who are not Catholic come with us to to the Catholic Church. So we certainly welcome them. We invite them to have a spiritual communion with us, but would not be appropriate for them to come forward to receive the Eucharist. The main reason is that uh, when we come forward to receive communion, uh, we're not only expressing our belief in the real presence of our Lord, that what we're receiving is his body blood, soul, and divinity. But it's also an expression of our communion with the teachings of the church. And for somebody who's not Catholic, who may not understand the teachings or may not agree with some of them, maybe needs further reflection or explanation, it it would be an inappropriate and incomplete expression for them to come forward uh, expressing that communion if if it doesn't exist. So what we do is uh, those that would like to come forward, if they would come forward with their arms crossed in front of them, uh, that's a a sign to the minister, to the priest, uh, that they're not receiving today for whatever reason and that they would like a blessing. And they're given a blessing uh, on the forehead. Sure. Or, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about for those people that are, are Catholic, that maybe grew up in a tradition, became Catholic, and now they're going back to mom or dad's church, and it's communion time. Are we supposed to receive or no? Yeah. So again, when we go to another denomination to their service, uh, we want to be respectful and even though they might invite us to come up and receive communion, would not be appropriate to do so just because we don't share the beliefs of, of that particular denomination. We may be very close. We may have some common beliefs. In fact, you know, my experience is that the things that we share in common in terms of faith and belief with other Christian denominations is, is typically greater than the things that we disagree on or that we, we engage in dialogue on. But we want to be respectful uh, not only to them, but also to our own faith and our own belief. So it would be appropriate to maybe spend some time in prayer, but to refrain from receiving what they would call communion at, at their service. Yeah. So as we wrap up this program today, Bishop, can we close with a blessing as we enter this Holy Week uh, that we all may be 
always conscious and mindful of what the great sacrifice our Lord made for us. Yeah, so God our Father, as we enter into this holiest week of the year, we just ask your blessing upon us and just pray that your Holy Spirit may guide our hearts, our our minds, our steps this week, that through this Holy Week, through this Triduum, through this Easter, we may be renewed in your love, that we may once again know just how much you love us and how much your Son sacrificed for us for the forgiveness of our sins, for our salvation. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Happy Easter, everyone. For more with Bishop Parks, including past programs, his social media accounts, and ways to subscribe to this podcast, visit dosp.org bishop. A View from the Top is a production of Spirit FM 90.5 and the Communications Office of the Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. A View from the Top is made possible by the annual Pastoral Appeal and listeners like you. Thank you for your support.